0: All right. Well, let's go. We're back in the book of Exodus. We've been here for a while, and we are now moving rather slowly. We, at one time, we're going kind of quick, I guess. We've hit the Ten Commandments. We're hitting each one, one at a time, going one by one, and we're at commandment number nine, and I've titled it this morning, Don't Lie to Me. And this is our cry out to the world so often because we know how frustrating, at the least, if not... uh, dangerous and challenging it is to be lied to. Uh, We want the truth, even if they tell us you can't handle it. And so often feels like in politics, this is where we cannot handle the truth. They're not willing to give it to us. I mean, just call me a pessimist, but it seems like lies and politics just go hand in hand, don't they? Uh, Such that as we hear campaign ads, or you read even news articles about what's going on, a political campaign, and we are not even in 2024 yet, when the election's gonna happen. And I think that's all the news talks about, or the things related to it, you know, trials, indictments, and Hunter Biden. But that's another story, okay? But it's hard to know what to believe. Uh, It's hard to find trust, to know what's really going on. And again, politics is case in point about this. So for example, George Santos, do you know this name? If you don't, let me remind you. He uh, made waves as he recently won a Republican seat in Congress from the state of New York. That's no small move, by the way. And initially, he particularly gained attention because he was the first openly LGBTQ Republican to win. But then he moved from famous to notorious because people started to ask questions about George's past. And the more people investigated, the more and more it appears that Mr. Santos nearly fabricated his entire biography such that he first claimed to be Jewish, that he actually had grandparents or something like this that escaped from the Holocaust. But then he had to go, ra- go back and rather clarify that he is not Jewish, but he's Jewish, whatever that meant. <laughs> he evidently lied where he went to college, that he actually played on their volleyball team and won a championship. He claimed to work for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, which he also entirely made up. But surely it was thought he wouldn't be elected, if he didn't have these kind of credentials, and so he lied about it, and then he actually got elected. But it's not Republicans who just have the corner on deception, is it? Uh, The ascendant, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, within the Democratic Party, she was caught telling by a fact checker a Four Pinocchio lie. I guess that's really bad. And it was regarding the details of the Pentagon's wasteful spending, which uh, can you even exaggerate that, but that's another story. She was confronted about this, though, this fact checker against her by CNN's Anderson Cooper, and AOC gave a curious reply. If people want to really blow up one figure here or one word there, I would argue they're missing the forest for the trees. I think there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely, factually, and semantically correct than about being morally right. Hmm, interesting. So, that means then, or implies at the least, facts, actual words, semantics don't really matter. You can say whatever, you're want, whatever you want to advance your morally right agenda. Not based on facts, mind you, because those are inconvenient against your own moral agenda, but they're based on you. This is the problem. I suppose then you can lie as much as you want, as long as it goes to a good end, she would contend, such that some have said, and aren't they right, that we live in a post-truth world. It's impossible to know who to trust. Well, is that okay? Is it okay we just concede this? Do we just accept this as Christians? What, What does God think about this? What does God expect of us as His people as it pertains to the truth? Does the truth really matter? Does God really care about the truth? Do lies really matter, even white lies, if they don't hurt anybody? Or is that even the right way to think about it at all? Because we know this, the devil is the father of lies. Lies in that way are dangerous. They are destructive. For it sides against the true God, the God who we read in Titus, who cannot lie. So we know where the lines are drawn, and His people are called to put away lying and speak the truth. And that's, in summary, what we're looking at this morning. What is the ninth commandment about? Of course, we've seen with these commands, they are not merely about don't do things, though many of them are put in the negative. But implied in what falls out of Scripture is it's don't, but it's also do. And so in this case, put away all lies, because you see they're destructive. They work to the subversion of your neighbor, let alone his testimony, and the testimony of our God. Put away all destructive lies. Instead, though, what do you do? You speak the truth. And it's the truth that builds up. It's the truth that edifies. Put away destructive lies and speak the truth that edifies. It rhymes. Well, with that, we're going to look at kind of three venues three areas are concerns about why we must speak the truth. And the first is this, we must speak the truth for justice sake. We'll see that as we look at the very command itself, but we need to speak the truth for justice sake. This is the primary concern actually of the command, to speak truth for the sake of justice, for the establishment of righteousness, equity, equity between people. And to get there, you cannot lie. We must speak the truth. That is, when we often come to the ninth commandment, say especially summarizing it for our children, or uh, maybe on the boardwalk sharing the gospel, we might summarize it as we often do: as simply, the ninth commandment is "Thou shall not lie." Don't tell falsehoods. Don't fib. Or always tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so forth. While that's perhaps, I would contend, that's a conclusion, that's a necessary consequence that falls out of this fundamental charge in the Ten Commandments. The very center of the command, though, has a sharper focus that God is after here. And so when we stare at the very center of this command, think of it like a target, but we're staring at the very center of the bullseye, that most foundational point, we uncover there God's priorities behind truth-telling, why God commands what He does, because it's more than, if I can put it this way, more than merely speaking truth for truth's sake, As important as that is. But first, we see this command has to do with speaking the truth for justice sake, for righteousness, for fair treatment under the law. So, let's look at this word, finally. Let's consider the command. It's verse 16 there in Exodus 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That sounds a little different than don't tell lies, doesn't it? You know, that's not quite the same. But I think you can tell by the way it's even translated in the English Bible, this has to do with what's going on in a court. This has to do with court proceedings when we're talking about bearing false witness, doesn't it? I mean, we have courts, of course, and you have a witness stand. That's kind of witnessing we're talking about here. Or someone is called to come forward to give their testimony, to give their take, their expertise, or their observations about some situation or person. So, excuse, excuse me. <coughs> with this command, don't bear false witness, you're dealing with the picture of a trial, aren't we? A dispute between two parties, and it's gone before a city's elders or some judge in, the, in Israel, or maybe all the way up to Moses himself. And you're called in that context to not bear false witness against your neighbor. Because you got to understand, in this ancient context, so much of the truth or, or the right judgment is made in any court case. It has to depend upon, and can only depend, upon eyewitness, eyewitness testimony. You know, they didn't have... GPS location on the cell phone to figure out where people really were. You didn't have voice recordings or DNA testing or videos or photographs or, you know, gloves that don't fit for some reason. You typically, what'd you have? You just had someone's word against someone else. And if justice was, was to be done, if, they, if the judge was to make the right adjudication, the whole system depends upon accurate, truthful testimonies from the witnesses. In other words, any time a witness comes up to the stand and they lie, they shade, or distort the truth, the judgment's going to be wrong. Why? Because it's based on the wrong information, false information. Justice has been subverted because lies have been told. And that's where this command does connect to lying even then so clearly. Because to look back to the command itself, you shall not bear false witness? That's the operative word or key term. That is, in your English Bible with that command, you don't see the word lying or lies, but a false witness really is a lying witness. That's what makes him false. He breathes out lies. And rather, a false witness is a technical term picked up in other places, and that's exactly what it means. It means one who tells lies. Like in Proverbs chapter 6, Verse 19, we hear about a false witness who breathes out lies and one whose swords sows discord among brothers. But that false witness, and that's the very same term from Exodus 20, what does he do? What defines him? He breathes out lies. It's like he speaks and lies just unfold out of his mouth. Or try this one, Proverbs 14, verse 5. Same kind of thing, but it makes a contrast. A faithful witness does not lie. But a false witness, same expression, breathes out lies. And we even know this when you make a lie. Have you ever made a lie? And then you had to make another lie to cover over that lie? And then another lie? Now, as bad as lies are, and how good that is not... Once you take that kind of matter into court, that's where grave troubles really rise. And again, that's the central concern of this command. And to show you that, I want to have you to flip over in your Bible to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Here you have the practical specifics of how this principle, thou shalt not bear false witness, plays out in the life of Israel. That is, again, remember the Ten Commandments are like these overarching principles like the statutory law, and then you have all the particulars which are kind of like a case law. They're really specific situations how this law plays out, if we can put it that way. And you'll see that this matter of not bearing false witness has all to do with justice in the court system. So, for example, you'll see as we look to verse 1, you're going to see a false report, and that word false is the same word for false witness. Back to command number 9, let's see this. Exodus 23, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man, note this, to be a malicious witness. Well, and there's the word witness again, right? So to connect the dots from the beginning to the end of that verse, you have a false witness becomes and is actually a malicious witness or a violent witness is a way you can translate that. Very evil, witness, because you've joined hands to advance a wicked purpose. Your shading the truth has made you a violent, malicious person. You are then out to actually harm other people, out to propagate wickedness, unrighteousness, and injustice. And notice, as this unfolds, it's especially important for claims about justice and equity. Look at verses 2 and 3. Again, what is God concerned about? He's concerned about impartial justice. You know, we know the picture of justice, right? In our courtroom, it's the blind lady justice. She has the blindfold over her eyes and holds the empty scales. Because she's not to make a judgment based on appearance or person or favoring anybody. You're supposed to base it on the facts. That's what God's after here. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 23. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil... What would that look like? Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. You cannot tip the scales in favor of the majority. Just because everybody says it's right, because everybody jumps off the bridge, you don't get to jump off too and get off. You fall. That's how that works. So just because everybody thinks it, if it's not true, you can't side with them. But verse 3, similarly, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Oh, but the poor man, he's disadvantaged. He could use some extra money. No, the matter is, what's the issue at hand? What's the fact at hand? And you judge based on that, not based on any position. Not based on who they are, whether it's the majority or whether it's the poor. You can't tip the scales in either way. Because if you do, what is it? It's a lie. It's injustice is what you're working. You can't side with the majority opinion. That's not truth just because they're the majority, nor can you side with the poor man to tilt the scales in his favor. Why? Because the truth cannot justify it. What are you doing? If you do these things, you're putting forward unrighteousness. You're propping up wickedness. It's a lie. And get this, as we find with God's concern here, if you, excuse me, if your false testimony perverts justice injustice that is rather if your false testimony puts forth injustice the lord's not going to hold you guiltless he's going to hold you accountable for your lie look at verse 7 keep far from a false that is a lying charge why do not kill the innocent and righteous why for i will not acquit the wicked God will judge and He will set it straight and He will hold anybody accountable that gets in the way of Him doing justice. That is, you're not only guilty if you commit the crime, but you're guilty if you cover over it. A lying witness, a false witness, always subverts justice from people getting what they deserved under the law. Okay. So what does this have to do with us? At the very least, you understand, you can't lie in court, okay? Under oath, in a trial, good. I hardly ever make it there. So, I'm fine by this. But I, I trust you see that there's, that in principle, this doesn't just apply in our law courts on a witness stand, but what about the court of public or even private opinion? False witness is an issue there, too. That is, how does your speech about others influence how those others think about others? We're talking about gossip. We're talking about slander. We're talking about character assassination. Maybe not before an honorable judge, but before the court of our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers, let alone church members. I mean, you know the evil of it, what it's like to be on the other side or to receive gossip and slander and how horrible it is. You know, you receive some juicy bit of gossip, some whisper about someone, someone you either didn't know ahead of time or you didn't know anything ill, you had no ill thoughts to them for any reason, but then you heard this and you're like, oh man, yeah, that guy. And then you run into that guy. And then what are you supposed to do? Well, you see them in a whole new light or darkness based on what you've just been told. And you get this, your bad estimation of them because of the gossip, it's because of the gossip, not based on anything you know they did or you saw them do, but just what somebody told you. Why? That false testimony has ruined that person's reputation, at least in your mind. That's not fair. That's not just it's sin. And the trouble is, it's really hard to unhear those things, isn't it? Martin Luther had said that someone's reputation, it's very easy to steal, but it's almost impossible to return. And he's right. And so when it comes to gossip, or slander being spread, you got to stop it, as awkward as that is. Because there's sin not only in telling it, but there's sin in receiving it and propagating it and tolerating it. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it like this, we must not only refrain from raising a false report, so putting out lies, but you must refrain from not taking it up, that is receiving it. He goes on, he that raises a slander carries the devil, the father of lies, in his tongue and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. So the next time someone comes up to you and has a prayer request that you have to whisper so no one else hears the prayer request, just interrupt them and tell them, only share this with me if I can really be part of the solution. Or if they told you to share this with me, and I'm really going to help. Because otherwise, just keep it to yourself. And this perhaps leads then to what's the best advice or counsel when, say, you have heard something. Or you suspect something. If someone is struggling spiritually and not doing well, and what are you supposed to do? Well, remember Matthew 18. When your brother sins against you or you suspect him of sin go and tell your pastor. Oh, wait, that's not what it says, is it? When your brother sins against you, go yourself to your brother is the idea. Just go talk to him. Crazy, right? It's not when your brother sins, go go tell your spiritual authority so they can deal with it. It's you go and so you get, it's private. It's discreet. It's just you and him maybe you misunderstood the situation. You ever been there? It might get clarified pretty quickly if you just talk to them. So I can tell you this, if you come up to me or any of the elders with something like, do you know what so-and-so said? Oh, did you see what they posted on Facebook? I probably didn't because I'm hardly ever on it. But the point is, no, I didn't see it. And if it concerns you or you think it's sinful, go talk to them. Do that first. Okay, there's a time and a place to get help from your spiritual mentor, pastors, counselors, for sure. Especially to come help a brother who is struggling. But gossip, talking behind their back, spreading stories, that's not the answer. Go talk to them first. And then if they don't listen, again, we're back to Matthew 18, there's a whole process for then bringing another brother along, getting some help. But the first thing you got to do, the just thing to do, for justice sake, go talk to them. And already, I trust you start to see how this bleeds over into really what is this next concern as it comes to speaking truth. We speak truth for the good of our neighbor. Actually, this is how we do good for our neighbor, in part, is that we speak truth to them, not merely about them. This is our motive for truth speaking. And we hear this as we return to the prohibition itself, that it's not merely about speaking truth for truth's sake. Thou shalt not bear false witness, period. That's not how it goes, is it? Thou shalt not bear false witness as it pertains to your neighbor or against your neighbor. That's how the command goes. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then if we're starting to squirm a little bit, we might want to ask Jesus, well, but who's my neighbor? Oh, that was tried already. (laughs) Remember, he told the Good Samaritan story. And we uncover who is our neighbor. Really, anyone the Lord puts before our path who's in need. That's who our neighbor is. So sometimes we come across a person in our path, so to speak, and they're in need of the truth, not lies from us. And so that's it. The, The law then explores, as it gets parsed out for Israel, it explores The implication of this command, not to bear false witness, it's really about caring for your neighbor, doing right by them, or even loving your neighbor. You do it by speaking the truth. Let me show you this. Turn over with me to Leviticus. So the next book in your Bible, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. We actually looked at this text briefly last week. When we went over, you shouldn't steal. But in Leviticus 19, there's more here to it than that. It speaks of robbery, yes, and lying, our subject here, and justice still again. But notice, and you can see this glancing through, just reading quickly in your Bible, it's all about how you treat your neighbor. That's the concern here. So to start with, look at verse 11 of Leviticus 19. You shall not steal. Don't do that. You shall not bear false, or you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie. But note to one another. So the word "lie" there—that's the word "false" from the the ninth of the tenth commandment, right? About being false witness, lying. So understand, lying is fundamentally forbidden here with the ten commandments. Don't lie, but the focus is about lying and telling falsehoods to your neighbor or to one another. This is the so what of truth-telling. This is why it's important. Lying hurts your neighbor. It doesn't love them. So, for example, look to verse 13. If you say you'd pay your neighbor for his work, but then you never do because you know he can't do anything about it, that's a lie. And more than that, that's actually hating your neighbor. Look at verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. How? The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. No, you got to pay the guy as you promised, as your word went out. you got to give him his wages for his work. To do otherwise is to hate him, to lie to him. Consider verse 15. Again, you're not supposed to lie in court. This is all about justice but justice for your neighbor. Verse 15, You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge, not period, judge your neighbor. And certainly, goes on in verse 16, You must not slander your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, spreading lies, disinformation, or evil speech. But notice it's all a wrong a gun done against your neighbor. That's the constant focus here. It's about your neighbor and what it is to love him. And what it is to love him is to speak truth. And what is it to actually even hate him? It's to hide the truth from him. Look at verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Which, what would that look like? Or in contrast, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So, so the picture's here. You shouldn't even hold the truth back from him when he needs to hear it. You know, we're getting at flattery now. Ah, oh, it's going to go evil for him. I should let him know. Eh, the truth is he can make his own bed. Or oh, look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. But instead, what are you going to do? But love your neighbor as yourself. You want the truth? That's what you owe to your neighbor, is the truth. That's how you love him. And to hold that back from him is hatred. But this starts to hit on why we bother lying, why we bear false witness, why we shade the truth, because we love us. And we're called to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. Because when we shade the truth in our favor, we are doing it to the disadvantage of our neighbor. And here that's called hate. That's called hate. We might not think of it so harshly as that, but that's what it is when we keep the truth from our neighbor. We hate them. But in contrast, we love ourselves. And that's shown in our desire to take what belongs to them, say either, again, their wages we promised them, or we lie about things we took from them, claiming that they're actually ours, or we slander our neighbor, we're spreading some bad report about them. Why do we do these things? I think in part, we just want to make ourselves feel better. You know, if I compare myself with my neighbor, if I don't esteem them very well, or others don't esteem them very well, they're going to think better about me. Or maybe we want something from our neighbor. We want... Like, isn't this what happens in politics so often? They slander one another to try and get that office for themselves, regardless of whatever the truth is, it seems. Or maybe your neighbor wronged you in some way, and so now you're going to get back at them, spreading ill report about them. You got some grudge. You want others to agree in your bad assessment, and that's what it's looking like in your heart. That seems to be the heart behind so much deception. We don't love Well, we do love. We love ourselves, not our neighbor. And whatever comes out of our mouth is out to make us look better, highly esteemed, more deserving, even as it comes at the expense of our neighbor. Let let me highlight, just to press a little harder for you, uh, three kind of types of deception that's so easy for us to fall into but every time it's working against our neighbor. Uh, first is simply, we only give the half-truth. There's the whole truth, but then we don't tell the whole story. We just are sure to include the bits of the story that make us look good, that probably cover over some wrong we've done. You know, put you in the, in the parenting shoes for a moment. You know, have you ever jumped to conclusions? about what's gone on between some conflict with your kids when you only got one side of the story? child runs up to you crying. So-and-so took my $5 bill. Wah. He did what? Oh, he knows better than that. Where is he? Let me go talk to him. He's going to be grounded for a decade. Did you take Jenny's $5? Well, yeah, but she stole it from me right out of my wallet first, and then she hit me. Oh, you didn't tell me that. It's a little different now, isn't it? That's the whole point. We frame the story a bit differently when it's us telling it to our advantage, whether it's flattery, insincerity. These are the kind of things we're giving half-truths. Or at other times, another kind of deception we put on others is that we are just given to exaggeration. Sometimes we do it, and we don't even see how we're hurting our neighbor, but we're exaggerating ourselves to make ourselves look better, which consequently will make them look worse. That's how it works. We want to make ourselves look more interesting than maybe we really are. Oh, yeah, I caught a fish. It was like, yeah, pretty big. That's sin. It's pride. You're taking from the people that are actually good fishermen. But many other times we exaggerate against our neighbor, say especially the neighbor closest to us, like our spouse, and we exaggerate to then justify our anger, our grudge against them. What does this look like? Well, have you ever heard in an argument the words like always and never when people are bickering? You never to listen when I have to say. Ever. Not once. You're always siding with your mother. You never pay attention when I'm talking to you. You always assume the worst about me. You never trust me with anything. Never? Really? Always? Literally? Not even once every time? I've never heard a word you've ever said in the world? Well, if I was more honest or fair, then I couldn't justify how bitter I am. Oh, that's how this works, isn't it? I'm just telling you how I feel. Well, maybe your feelings aren't based on truth, you see. But you want to justify why, and so you deceive, you exaggerate. Or another thing we'll do with our neighbor is that we'll twist their words. We'll take them out of context. We'll maybe even use the literal words, but then we'll make them mean the thing they didn't intend to mean. Oh, hun, let let's go out for dinner tonight. You're just saying you don't like my cooking. Oh, that's trouble. Don't get there. Well, that's not what I meant. But when it's taken that way, it's a deception. That's not loving your neighbor. It's not giving them credit. You're assuming, I know what you're thinking. You have evil intent. You said this, but it means this, even though that's not what it meant. That's bearing false witness of a sort. It's a deception. It's lying. It dishonors God, whom we represent, and more pertinently, at least in the center of this, it hurts our neighbor. Rather, we need to speak truth to our neighbor because that's what's for their good. Which, I trust you see, that's kind of where things turn next as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to now look at the New Testament. And we've got to see that we need to speak truth for edification's sake. That's the often Pauline or biblical word for building up the body, encouragement. Building up the body of Christ to become more like Him. This means we speak the truth with a purpose. We have a goal, and it's to edify our neighbor, most of all our brother and sister in the faith. We must edify the church, and we do so with our speech, okay? And we see this as we go back to Ephesians 4 now. Uh, We looked at this passage last week as we considered, what does repentance look like? What does it mean to be a Christian and you repent? Well, we saw it's two parts. It's a put off. You put off your old behavior, but then you don't just put off and stand there. You put on. And you put on new behavior and walk in it. You walk in a changed life. And so we looked at the thief from verse 28. He is going to stop stealing, yes, but then you don't just not steal anymore. No, the Christian puts on a whole totally changed life. That looks like for the thief, he works hard. So then he can give to someone who has need. Well, he also uses truth speaking and lying as he talks about this. And it's not merely the put-off of falsehood, but it's a put-on of something else. Look at verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, Paul writes, having put away falsehood, putting away lying, exaggeration, deception, what do you to do instead? That's the put-off. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And you get it. The solution is not, okay, don't lie anymore. Well, fine. I'm just never going to speak ever again. Exaggeration doesn't work, right? No, you need to speak, and actually, you have a responsibility to speak truth, to speak truth with your neighbor for their good. Because then Paul adds at the end of that verse: "For we are members of one another." Oh, isn't that interesting? This is why it's so important to speak the truth to one another especially one another in the church. Why? Because you're actually members of the same body of Christ. We're members of one another. We're fellow members of the same body, such that to keep the truth from one member of the body only hurts each other. And not just them, but all of us, because we're all one. When one member gets hurt, we're all getting hurt by that. The old preacher Chrysostom use this uh, similar example. He put it like this. Imagine the eye lies to the foot about the copperhead snake ahead on the path. That doesn't help the whole body because when that snake bites the foot and then you get sick and the eye dies too, right? You see that? It doesn't help the body when one part lies to the other. Or what about the nose? It smells the odor of a fire burning, Well, you're going to lie to the body. That's nothing. That doesn't help the body. It puts the body at risk. The body is made to work together in concert, in peace, not against each other, which looks like at least speaking lies. Actually, to just bump your eyes back up Ephesians 4, a couple verses, we find this is exactly what the truth is supposed to do. The truth is supposed to encourage unity which then works to build up the body. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, placeholder there, we'll come back to all that. But note this, speaking the truth in love, when you're doing that, what's going to happen? We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. That's how we grow up spiritually to be like Jesus. And what does that look like? From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, I mean, this is a well-oiled body and machine. All in each part does its part. And what does it do? When each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow. In other words, what's the picture? Build itself up. Or Paul's term, edify in love. Growing us up to be more like Jesus. But how does that happen? It's when we speak the truth. And that way, loving one another. leads us to Christ who is himself the truth, not lies. Such that as you then turn to the end of Ephesians 4, Paul starts to explore the kind of speech that shouldn't come out of our mouth and the kind of truth that should and what it's going to do. Look at verse 29 then of Ephesians 4. He says, "...let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths." And that would include, of course, exaggerations, Lies, half-truths, twisted words. Why? Because they are going to corrupt and fracture the unity of the church. Why? It's going to compromise the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters. It works against the good of the body. Don't even let that stuff come out of your mouth, let alone into your mind, but stop it there. So instead, what's the put on? Don't let that stuff come out of your mouth, but stuff's got to come out of your mouth. What is it? Middle of verse 29 but only such as is good. And what's it good for? For building up, for edification, for an encouragement, as fits the occasion, and note this, that it may give grace. Oh, this is it, to those who hear. And so here we are. You have truth spoken, but it's married with grace. Oh, this is a game changer. This is what makes us as distinct Paul put it in verse 15 when he said, it's us speaking. We're speaking the truth, right? But how do we speak it? In love. It's the kind of truth-telling, yes, that confronts sin. It has to bring up uncomfortable things at times. Yes, it's a responsibility when your brother sins against you. You got to go talk to him. You got to bring him the truth. You got to speak frankly. But you do it in a loving way, a humble way. Like what Paul talks about in Galatians 6. If anyone's caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But then he adds, in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because you've been there. You know what it's like to need grace, and you need it when you're caught in sin. Such that, you understand, we're not just called to speak the naked truth or the blunt truth. And and then excuse it on our personality. I'm just a blunt person. I'm from the Northeast. You just got to take it. That's not how this works. As one pastor, I think, just so helpfully clarified, he wrote this. Sometimes sin needs to be confronted. And in those cases, keeping the ninth commandment means speaking the truth. And then with emphasis, he adds, in love, to quote Ephesians 4. Unfortunately, the love is usually what's missing. Some Christians are more than willing to tell it like it is, but there is something brutal about their honesty. Understand that keeping the ninth commandment does not mean saying whatever comes to mind, please. There are many situations in life when it's better to say nothing at all, but what the ninth commandment means is saying the honest thing when it is our duty to say it in a loving way. That nails it. What's the ninth commandment about? saying the honest thing when it is our duty to say it in a loving way. And in that way, we can be like our Lord who is the truth, but He's filled with grace and truth, isn't He? And this isn't easy, because you understand how hard it can be, especially when the truth is you've been wronged, when you didn't get justice. And so then we're going to want to take it into our own hands. And what does that look like? Bitterness, wrath, anger against others. And we feel justified in our grudge because it's true. We've been wronged. He lied about me. He twisted my words. He spread rumors. That's not what I said. And it's hard not to be bitter then. But understand this. Truth alone or justice alone will be no remedy for that, at least in our relationships and lifetime. What's the remedy? But truth married with grace is. And isn't that what our Lord embodied? You know, perhaps most of all, as he was tried before Pontius Pilate, right? And the high priests and literally false witnesses are bearing false testimony, hurling it against him. And Pilate asked Jesus one last time, this is Mark 15, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make Jesus? See how many charges they're bringing against you. This is your death sentence. Say something. What did Jesus say? What was his reply? Listen, and you can hear it. He said nothing. He didn't answer a word. But Jesus made no further answer, the scripture says, so that Pilate was amazed. He made no claim to his innocence, though he had it. He just took the insults. He took the shame. He took the false testimony. And he made no attempt to get out of it. And do you know why? Or do you remember why? Because as he was taking those shame and insults and false testimony, he was taking your sin, too, if you trust him. And that's why he was going to the cross. He didn't deserve the insults. He didn't deserve the cross. He didn't deserve the punishment for our sin. But he willingly took them all that he might bear the truth of the punishment of it all for us. And that we might get not just truth, but we get grace with it. That we might know the greatest truth. Peace. True peace with God comes through our sin bearer, the crucified and resurrected, gracious and true Jesus Christ. We're at his cross. Justice and mercy, they kiss. But that can only happen at the cross. And it's from that context where we've received Truth and grace, where us exaggerators we are, slanderers we are, truth twisters we are, liars we are, can be truly forgiven in him. It's from that context, isn't it? That we can come, and we can come with the bold truth, but we come with all compassion and gentleness and love because that's what we need. Because it's a truth not just caught up in justice, but it's a truth married with mercy. That's why you see Paul and. Where he does here, right? Verse 31 of Ephesians four, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, what's the put on? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How can I do that? Well, you go back and you remember, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the gospel truth, that we must be speaking to one another all the time. That's how we build one another up, right? To become more like Christ. Let's do that. Let's pray for His help in that. Father, we marvel at the truth of who You are. For the more we dig, the more we truly find out who You are, and we rejoice. For we Find that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, punches, and you say, and you are also the God who will by no means clear the guilty. You are the God of truth. Thank you for marrying that truth with grace. May we be overcome by that mercy, the truth of it, and walk boldly in it, bold to extend mercy to others, to speak it to others. So give us the boldness to speak the truth and love to one another, to speak the truth and love to this world, and to point them to the one place where grace and truth can be found. May we live it for your glory as you're redeemed. Amen.